Hello and welcome to Laid Back Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I'm WSET Level 3 certified in wine, and I'm an administrator for our wine spirits educating body. And last time on Laid Back Lush, we were talking about natural wine, its foundational principles as well as the culture surrounding it, where we discussed organic farming, sustainable farming, biodynamics, as well as low intervention methodology within the handling of wine. Yes. Uh, If you would like to give that a listen before you give this episode a listen, it would be to your advantage unless you are more familiar with the topic already. And you Um, just want to hear our hot takes. Our hot takes. And that is really what this episode is going to be. We are just going to be discussing our personal opinions on the trends that we're seeing, the practices that we're seeing, and whether or not we think that they either hold water or uh, cause soil drainage and surface runoff. Um, <laughs> that's if you if if you listen to the last episode, you'll get that joke. If you did get that joke, you probably didn't laugh. But in any case, that is what we're going to be doing. <laughs> please don't please don't click off, guys. <laughs> don't click please off. don't click off. I promise, it gets better. It gets better. I, I I'm not as charming. I know, <laughs> but anyways. Uh, So we wanted to first discuss kind of the things that we disliked about this trend, Mm -hmm. not because we think that it is bad. In general, I I like the natural wine movement. Um, I think that Gabe also likes the natural wine movement, especially with sustainability and uh, the organic considerations. Here's the thing, okay? And Michael can attest to this. Mm -hmm. Even the things that I adore in my life, (laughs) I am more than able to continue to criticize 100% and i think one thing that particularly ends up bothering you gabe seems to be false claims yes and uh elitism which is funny to say for you because you have very specific opinions about almost everything <laughs> yeah but as soon as you see uh specifically elitism mm-hmm. that surrounds something that you think is based on something false it, incen- it it causes you to be incent. In- incensed. Incensed. It co- yeah. It causes <laughs> you to be incensed. Yeah, I uh, I I don't like faulty justifications for things. Yeah, it really irks me. <laughs> and since so much of wine is subjective, mm-hmm. a lot of the arguments from authority can be used inside of wine. So let's get into it. What are some of yeah. the things that you dislike about the culture of natural wine well uh, i think my number one and if you listen to our previous episode you might have picked up on this a little bit no one seems to be able to agree on a single specific definition Mm -hmm. of natural wine for some people it's the sustainability aspect and the minimal vineyard management for some people it's merely just the no sulfite thing for some people it's all of it For some people, it means that it just has to be low intervention and taste a little weird. There is such a wide variety of what people consider to be natural wine that I would really like to see a narrowing down of our definitions because while I understand that such a broad heading is going to have some ambiguity, I really would like to have more of something that I can be like, okay, this is what natural wine is, even if there's some vagueness. I just feel like there's a little bit too much vagueness right now. And there are some people who are trying to uh, increase 
the specificity mm-hmm. of what natural wine is. People like Isabel Legeron, one of the few masters of wine in the world who is at kind of the forefront of this, mm-hmm. and she describes it as a spectrum with a very specific center, but she is one person with a small family of vineyards that will go under this definition. Yeah. And they're saying that the further away you get from it, where you're not being sustainable, you're not being organic, you're not being low intervention, you're moving away from natural wines, but you're still within the umbrella of it, which again leads us to, okay, well then we're back to it being nonspecific. Yeah. Well, because it's kind of like, all right, so if I am just an organic vineyard and I only add sulfites at the end of my production to make sure it's shelf stable but I use an industrial strain of yeast. Am I natural? Yeah, we don't know. So the definition of natural is fairly dubious because, especially for me, the idea of natural is literally anything that is naturally occurring. So that includes human intervention. Yeah, That is something that naturally occurs. Now, if you want to talk about synthetic products, if you want to talk about those types of things, you have to be a bit more strict in your definitions. Yeah, so... I have more beef with the term natural myself, personally, more from a philosophical and, um, again, a justifications standpoint. What is natural when we're talking about natural wine? Because to me, from a philosophical standpoint, natural winemaking is still unnatural because grapes don't naturally fall into an amphora and produce a drinkable liquid on their own. And, yes, they will yeah. ferment naturally, but they will also then turn into vinegar due to bacteria that will come in later exactly. naturally. And because so, you have to scrub out everything mm-hmm. in order to allow for the right things to take hold of of grapes. So what is what is natural? Because even when we come down to the sulfites argument, right? People are like, well, the amount of sulfites that are added are unnatural. And I'm like, okay, for one thing, we've been adding sulfites to wine for hundreds of years now. Started in the Iberian Peninsula. Listen to our wine history series if you want to learn more about that. So why are sulfites now not natural? Also, sulfites naturally occur. We mentioned this in the last episode as a result of the fermentation itself. Much lower than what is added to a wine. I will give people that. But... This distinction between what is and is not natural seems a little arbitrary for me. I think from my own point of view, and this is um, more something that's used in debate rhetoric, and so I'm sorry to be that guy right now, but there is something called the appeal to nature fallacy, which Mm -hmm. basically says that anything that is naturally occurring is therefore an inherent good or how things should operate. My counterpoint to that is if you know anything about the mating habits of ducks— that doesn't always hold water. Whoa, you went right for the throat. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was going to just bring up like sickness because, you know, viruses are a completely natural yeah. thing. Bacteria are completely natural. You just went straight for like the worst example <laughs> in nature that I know of. Listen, I'm strongly opinionated, Michael. <laughs> Dear Lord, like slow down, slow your roll. All right. I'll, but, I'll, but you I'll, are correct. I'll no, you have roll. a point. Though. I'll slow the roll to... Uh, Arsenic is naturally occurring in apple seeds. Yeah, but you do have a point. Yeah. Naturally occurring doesn't mean morally correct, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean beneficial to the human body or even to the environment. Mm -hmm. Now, do natural systems normally come into a balance? Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's immediately beneficial 
to all of the members included. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a system that comes into balance because of an asteroid. Yeah. Uh, you can have a system that comes into balance because of the removal of one of its elements via the overtaking of another. Mm-hmm. So the idea of something natural being necessarily good, especially when in reference to food, certain things are bad for you. Yeah. They just, they are. They're not healthy for you, which is why for me at least, the idea of it, its measurable impact is the more important thing. Yeah. So because I don't like giving problems without solutions, I personally think, and I know this is probably never going to happen, but I would prefer if we would stop using natural just kind of on its own Mm -hmm. and maybe start picking up low intervention and sustainable. Because I think that is kind of the distillation of the philosophy of natural wine is let the wine do as much on its own as it possibly can and still be drinkable. Mm Mm-hmm. And make sure how those grapes even came about in the first place is done in as much of an equitable and sustainable way as possible. Yeah, and even within the elements of permaculture, at the very least, it can be not only a net zero effect, but actually Mm -hmm. a net positive effect on biodiversity, on wildlife, Mm -hmm. on the workers that are in the vineyards even. Because like pesticides, they have to be sprayed by people. Yeah. They end up having to be exposed to herbicides, pesticides, insecticides. And that's not really good for even the workers on the vineyards themselves. No, it's not at all. So, you know, you have this idea of natural, but it's not refined enough in order to actually be anything but a buzzword. Yeah. It should be low to no to positive environmental impact, including wildlife and uh, both flora and fauna. Mm -hmm. And it also should be healthy for the people in the vineyard. And it should be provably healthy for the people that are drinking it. Yeah. It shouldn't be this amorphous term. It should be measurable. So unless you had anything else for natural, definitionally. Um, no, because we don't just have the idea of natural. We also have some things that might be actually affecting the quality of the product within the culture. Yeah. So one of the biggest criticisms I have seen personally and something I've actually encountered in some natural wines is the accusation that a lot of people within the natural wine community will excuse away flawed wines as unique or, um, well, it's supposed to be funky and weird, which to be clear, I have no problem with funky, weird wines. I do have a problem with flawed wines trying to be sold to me as a unique experience. Yeah. If there is unchecked Britannomyces in that wine and it literally just smells like a horse blanket, I don't want to drink it. Like, I'm sorry. I just I'm not going to let that be excused away as a feature. Or like in some cases of skin contact or orange wines. It's smelling like nothing but acetone. And, exactly. And them trying to sell it off as, oh, well, that's what it's supposed to yeah. smell like. There's... It's like just because you could doesn't yeah. mean you should have. And also, if you did this on accident, you shouldn't be promoting it as, oh, well, this is what wine is supposed to taste like. Because mm-hmm. that's misinforming the consumer. Yeah. It's placing an unneeded precedent yeah. of elitism within something that is actually the opposite of excellence and elitism. Yeah. I mean, some people even try and excuse away mouse taint in natural wines, which if you don't know what mouse taint is, uh, we do actually have a wine flaws episode you can listen to. But essentially think, you know, when you first taste it, it tastes fine. But then all of a sudden your mouth tastes like a dirty hamster cage. That's mouse taint. So 
No, that is sneaks up on you. Yeah, that is not anything I want to put in my mouth. Now, to be fair, there are people within the wine community that do call this tendency out. So this is by no means the entirety of the natural wine movement, but it is something that is prominent enough that it has been called out repeatedly, and I think rightly so. I 100% agree with you on that. Yeah. And I can tell you, as somebody who worked in wine sales, there is already, within any marketing community, a trend towards telling the consumer what they need to hear in order to make the purchase. It's just a reality. Yeah. It's unfortunate. And a lot of the ad campaigns will do that. I was even listening to Spotify earlier, and I end up hearing this ad for a food delivering service. And they're like, we'll literally deliver you anything anywhere. And then in the disclaimer, it goes, literally does not mean literally. <laughs> it, it, you know, and that's the sort of thing that you can even get away with Yeah, uh, on a corporate, nationally publicized level. Particularly um, in the United States. Particularly in the United States. And so this idea that you can just create a narrative surrounding mm -hmm. wine in order to sell your product, I understand people needing to be able to sell something. Yeah. I understand the economic trouble that it would be if you just had to dump all of it. Yeah. But you can say that it's flawed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just own it. Just own it. Yeah. And... And you know, maybe reconsider your winemaking practices if you're consistently producing flawed wine. Precisely. It should not be an excuse for poor wine. Yeah. It should not be, and you should not be misinforming your consumers. Yeah. So in the vein of misinforming consumers, this one is not a big knock for me, but it is something I think is worth mentioning is one thing I came across is a lot of people were saying, well, natural wine is not being sold at luxury price points. It's a cheaper overall you know, option than a lot of conventional wines. That is not true. No. <laughs> um, you know, as with conventional wines, there's a whole price gamut of natural wines. When we went to Celadora, they had bottles that were $50, $60. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that expensive wine is a bad thing, but don't pitch something to me as being a, the more affordable option when, yes, there absolutely are affordable options within natural wine, but I would not say that that is a defining characteristic of natural wine in my experience. Yeah. A lot of natural wines are at very least $20. Now, for most people, that is like an affordable wine, but I would not say that that's like a cheap wine. And again, that's on the low end. I think our first recommendations podcast episode, we literally kept it at under 15 because yeah. we know that a lot of you, and even me and Gabe, $15 for a bottle of wine, is it, it, it might be where you're at. Yeah. And again, I, I'm not saying this to say that producers shouldn't sell wines at whatever price point fits their economic model. I really want to support the winemakers that do this, and we'll get into that and the what I like about natural wine section. And it is the producers partially. And so I want them to continue to make wines. Um, I just want to be upfront that, as with conventional wine, it's not that different. There is a whole gamut of price points that are being sold under the natural wine heading. Now, there's also a good point. Um, so there's a podcast called The Organic Wine Podcast. And there's an episode that the guy did. And I'm so sorry, I cannot remember his name at the moment. Um, but it was called Natural Wine is Bullshit. 
he it's has a quote we can say it <laughs> he has he has another episode called why natural and organic wines will save the world so like he he acknowledges both sides of the argument but something he pointed out in the you know why natural wine is bullshit episode is there's the whole thing about sustainability right but when you think about the fact that a lot of natural wines because of their popularity are being shipped all over the world right now the carbon emissions from transportation are still a problem, mm-hmm. particularly you're shipping glass. Glass already is a higher carbon footprint for most products because of the weight and how much more it takes to ship it with mm-hmm. that weight uh, point. This isn't a huge knock for me against natural wine, but it is something to be aware of. Of We also need to be rethinking the supply chain. Yeah. As well as the vineyard. Well, and a lot of people like, uh, like I keep on mentioning, but there was a wealth of information on the raw wine website by Isabel Legeron. But one thing that she mentions as a best practice of natural wine is to get it as locally as possible. Exactly. And that um, was his point as well, the organic wine podcast. Yeah. And so not only because it cuts down on the transportation emissions, but also because of the fact that a lot of natural wines aren't as shelf stable. They need to be treated like a grocery product. Yes. So getting a local grocery product is going to be generally better. And who knows what health benefits there might be for that. I, I yeah. haven't done any research as to any correlations there, but well, and local the, products are good for you. And you're keeping money in your local economy. You're promoting the people in your community that need to stay in business. And that is always a plus in my book. Yeah. Which is great because, well, on on the one hand, it it promotes that sense of community, but it also promotes travel. Yeah. But that might be going in the exact opposite direction since now you're just traveling as a person. Well, I mean, there's no easy solution to this problem because we have, particularly again in the United States, become a car-dependent, fossil-fuel-driven empire. It's hard to be able to have a a one-size-fits-all solution for the carbon emission problem so i'm not trying to shame anyone i don't think michael is either for buying you know any wine that isn't immediately next door grown and produced um but it's something to think about and i think the natural wine industry should be thinking about this as well i I would like to caveat all this by saying that neither gabe nor i are trying to shame anybody oh yeah uh, about any of this this is just our opinions and the way that we are reacting to the state of affairs as we become aware of them. Yeah. So moving on, um, this is honestly outside of the definition of what is natural, what isn't is my biggest gripe with the natural wine movement is some, some people have a snobbery problem. If you have been listening to us from the beginning, you know, part of why we founded this podcast was an extreme distaste for snobbery Mm -hmm. in wine. And I feel like it's very ironic that this would pop up in the part of wine that's supposed to be the most open, the most diverse, the most, you know, understanding. What I mean by the snobbery is there are some people, and again, this is by no means every person who drinks natural wine or every enthusiast or critic, but there are some people that just look down on conventional wines as a whole and even the fact that people still consume them. And they'll discredit the value of the wines, mm-hmm. the flavor of the wines, yeah, simply on the basis that it's not a natural wine. I mean, I was in the room with someone who drinks natural wine that told me all conventional wine now tastes the same to them. And I was just like, that's not true. Like, it, sure, it might be true to you and your palate. I, I 
am dubious. I am dubious on that claim, but you know, I'm not in your brain. I'm not going to pretend that I can read your mind. However, I'm not buying it for most people. <laughs> the overwhelming majority of people, I think, would hopefully be able to recognize that there are outstanding wines in both the natural wine and the conventional wine category, and there are undrinkable wines in the natural wine and the conventional yeah. wine category. And we've seen this over and over again in marketing of new trends especially throughout the history of the U.S., if you've done any sort of study into marketing, you can see that they end up getting cult followings and the enthusiasm ends up outpacing other things. Yeah. Um, so this narrative ends up becoming such a monster that it actually starts to make people say some pretty crazy things like what yeah. Gabe just mentioned. Claims about you know overstated health benefits, all of these things being generated by hype and a need for justification on something that doesn't really need justification. Yeah. Well, there's also the aspect, and this is something that is also very prominent in the Richmond craft beer scene, is the indie cred yeah. part of the whole thing. My waxed mustache quivers. I, I mean, if, elitism. if there's one thing, and you, again, you can ask Michael about this. If there's one thing I really cannot stand, it's the hipsters. It's the hipster <laughs> attitude. Even though, ironically enough, I am someone who's into very niche, weird stuff. Um, but I don't like advertising that to people as like a thing that makes me interesting for its own sake. And I do sometimes think that natural wine drinkers tend to be a little too on the like, well, I drink weird stuff into things. Yeah, and there's a difference between making the decision to drink natural wine from the moral aspect of, well, I want to promote things that are sustainable, mm -hmm. um, or I prefer knowing what's in my body. But if you are forcing yourself to do something because of the generalized opinions of others, and then you are allowing for that pressure to be expressed through you— Please get therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to be clear, as with all of this, like this isn't every natural wine drinker. No. This isn't I wouldn't even say my experience is the majority, but it definitely is a vocal minority, if nothing else. Yeah. And I would like to see it go away <laughs> personally. So with all that being said, though, I really like natural wine in general. Mm -hmm. I love the trend towards sustainability and uh, organic experiences. Yeah. So let's talk maybe a little bit more about what we do like. Well, it's funny because the very last bullet point that I have on my what I don't like about natural wine is every bottle is a surprise. But the first point on my what I do like list is every bottle is a surprise. So <laughs> natural wine is incredibly diverse. You know, as we mentioned, when we went to Saladora to kind of, you know, just taste some natural wines to kind of get a feel for them for this episode, because I know Michael hadn't had a lot of experience. I've had a little bit more. I still haven't uh, tried Pet Nat, which I hope that this doesn't disqualify me. I mean, I'm pretty sure Second Bottle at one point had Early Mountain's Pet Nat. In, and I know Early Mountain just recently, I think, released a Pet Nat. And I love Bubbles so yeah. much. Yeah, well, hey, I mean, I can already say uh, Early Mountains, if you live in Virginia and you have access to it, is a very good pet nat. Saying all that to say, the bottle variety of what you can get in natural wine, I think is kind of unparalleled. I do think there is something to the homogeneity, the criticism of the homogeneity of conventional wine. I think that is absolutely a trend that is being lessened now, even in conventional wine, but it's absolutely like, 
everybody grows Cabernet Sauvignon across the world at this point. Everybody yeah. grows Chardonnay. And I really like that, particularly for natural wine, there's a lot of promotion of indigenous varietals, um, traditional winemaking methods that are specific to a region. I really like that because it's so nice to find wine that you might not know what you're getting. Now, again, I put it under both what I like and what I don't like. That can be a double-edged sword because you might just pick up a really nasty wine, frankly. But at least there's exploration to be had there that's a little bit more far-reaching than I think is what is currently going on with conventional wines. Mm. I also, as you've already mentioned, I like the sustainability aspect a lot. Not all natural wine producers are certified organic so within this there can kind of be an accountability issue but if they're selling themselves as natural odds are they're doing the best that they can in the vineyard to really go above and beyond making sure that that vineyard stays healthy and a vineyard that can continue to be harvested for decades for generations even and if they are doing that with the sustainability aspect those two really are married because the methods of creating a sustainable wine allow you to be more organic yeah it also saves you money in the long run because of the fact that you're not having to invest as much in the fertilizers in the mm -hmm. herbicides the pesticides the insecticides yeah it becomes necessary to be both mm-hmm and those are the things that I really like as well. You know, I would prefer not dumping this stuff into nature constantly. Yeah. There's even certain certifications that are in like Oregon and Washington and Idaho where they are conscientious of the fact that when they are spraying this stuff on the fields, it ends up in the waterways. And that ends up even affecting the wildlife in the waterways. Um, these are all issues of stewardship of the land that need to be addressed rather quickly if we are going to avoid the, well, I say avoid, Climate if we're going to, to mitigate the amount of catastrophe that is being projected mm -hmm. in the next 30 years. Yeah. I mean, the wine industry in France is the biggest polluting industry in mm -hmm. France. And France does aerospace technology. That's actually their main export, fun fact. I didn't know that. Yep. Mm -hmm. They uh, They do a ton of aerospace engineering in France. And that that's industrial yeah and so if wine is still their biggest polluter yeah that's a problem well and that's the thing a lot of the places like chablis uh bordeaux they have no interest in becoming any sort of natural they're not interested in um uh, sustainability that's not necessarily true a lot of younger people actually particularly in bordeaux are starting to oh, look really? at going more organic and, and natural in their approach to wine because the only ones that i was seeing buying up property when i was looking was like in loire valley sancerre mm -hmm. where, where land is cheaper yeah but it's good there, to know that there the is the capital problem but a lot of these are people that are inheriting property and mm -hmm. just have a more holistic philosophy yeah. on winemaking in these regions. So there's hope. Yeah, which it's it is hopeful. I mean, yeah. all of New Zealand is pretty much uh, sustainable farming. Mm -hmm. uh, I know S Sonoma has its self certified. Again, yeah. we are talking I, about certifications as that I, are region specific. I am particularly California and. I hope people don't get the impression that I like hate California wine by listening to this podcast too much. Um, but California, in my opinion, particularly the business aspect, does kind of exemplify pretty much everything I really don't like about wine business in the United States, at least. 
And so I would appreciate more regulation in that regard and more accountability. Some sort of maybe overarching governing body, since you can't just have individual areas determining their own standards uh, when you have an international Mm -hmm. impact. The USDA does, I think, regulate kind of at a macro level all the certs, but um, it they still vary pretty widely region by region and it should be more transparency Mm -hmm. a little bit more oversight by an established authority within the science itself yeah um and maybe that's one thing that i forgot to mention about things i don't like i do not like how hard it is to find information on what a specific certification means yeah i love that this is an effort being made I love that we're taking more responsibility for land, that we are finding ways of making a positive impact with our technologies. But there is so much vagueness in these things. It is so hard to find the information Yeah, that it really is not fair to the consumer. And it's, it's not helping the effort. No. It's not helping the effort. But even in spite of all of that, I do think natural wine overall is a very good net gain for the industry as a whole in terms of its farming practices in terms of focusing on the sustainability of vineyards and just the business model of wine to begin with. I think that's very good. It's not only that, though. There are some amazing things that can happen with the flavor and the texture of the wines, like we've been talking about, and you especially talked about in the last episode, that happen because of these ideas of low intervention. Yeah. So for specifics, um, you know, there is, again, very minimal, if any, fining and filtering in natural wines, which is in conventional wines used for stabilization and clarification. Natural wines are kind of known for, in general, being a lot less clear, so a lot of them will be hazy even. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's more of an aesthetic that we've been trained to look for in wine overall. It can be indicative of faults, don't get me wrong, but uh, in general, how clear wines are now overall is more something that has been ingrained in us through marketing than legitimate issues with clarification of wine. So I really like that the minimal finding and filtering is a very prominent thing in natural wines because- It also makes it more accessible to vegans. Yes, that is a big point is that a lot of finding agents in conventional wines are not vegan. So a lot of vegans actually struggle to find wine that they can drink. I know a couple personally. So the natural wine movement provides a lot more options for them overall. Also, just for the flavor profile and the texture of wine, I think as minimal filtering as you can get away with is always a good thing because it allows for more aroma compounds to stay in, some of the larger molecules and chemical compounds to remain intact. It gives more subtlety, gives more nuance, gives me a clearer sense of what this wine is and where it came from versus something that Yellowtail shoved in a bottle that yeah, sure. It tastes like it's from somewhere. That's it's grape drink. Sure. Yeah, it's a grape drink. <laughs> There's a little bit more to the expression of certain natural wines in terms of terroir because they do encourage native varietals. And even having the influence of, uh, well, in permaculture, you, you have a lot of native blooms that are going to be there. A lot of native fruiting bodies, uh, fruiting trees, hedges even just small things on the ground, legumes, those all end up getting into the flavor of the grapes themselves because mm-hmm. the skins of grapes are not, they're not watertight. They're yeah. permeable. 
And so you'll end up having those aromas also getting into it. So you have those native plants even becoming an influence into the flavor of the grapes, yeah. as well as those native strains of yeast. And there's that argument to be made about, well, is that not a truer expression of terroir since it also represents the biodiversity of an yeah. area? Yeah, and so the yeasts are actually what I was going to get into next is that that really is, in my opinion, because they grow on the grapes. Some of them grow on the grapes, and yeasts, again, are everywhere. They're in the room that you're in right now. Um, but the idea of promoting your own biodiversity on the micro level with your yeast that you're using for your fermentation, I love because it is something that gives me more of a sense of where this wine came from, of what your winery can do. And I really enjoy that. Yes, um, one of the knocks against natural yeasts is they tend to produce a lot more off flavors. So there is the potential for flawed wines to happen more easily with natural yeast. However, again, we talked about this last episode, but you can cultivate your own strains that are naturally occurring in your winery and kind of select for the ones that you want and cultivate those and inoculate with what is still your yeast but just slightly um cleaned up a little bit or perfected to give a better end product and i i just i really like that method of approaching the wine yeah another thing that's really cool a little bit of a fun fact is that the groups that are doing as natural of farming as they can they will put in fruiting trees, uh, about one per hectare. I mentioned this in the last episode. And they start to eat things called aeroplanktons. But this also serves as a way of collecting more yeasts and spores from the air. And that can actually serve as a natural fungicide because it competes against those uh, bad fungus elements and will actually keep them from having enough resources to spread out and cause mildew and cause all this other stuff. But then those strains of yeast can be collected, and they can all be collected and cultivated as, you can say, a large palette of different types of yeast that can be used for the wine while not sacrificing the region-specific, the vineyard-specific even, yeast elements yeah and you know i understand why conventional winemakers enjoy the um flavor profiles and ease of use and ease of use that come from industrial strains but for me it's kind of like you know x percent of wines on the market all have the exact same compounds coming from their yeast like Sure, I'm sure it tastes good, but that's very boring in my opinion. Gabe gets bored easy. I get bored very easily, <laughs> <laughs> which is something I like about natural wine is it can keep you on your toes and it can expose you to a lot of wines you would not have found otherwise. And I think that it's going to be more interesting moving forward as we do see more and more genetic diversity being created inside mm -hmm. of these vineyards yeah um, as a quick psa or uh, a quick recommendation if you are vegan and you are worried about uh, wines maybe this is the first time that you've ever heard that some wines aren't vegan there is a website called barnivore that you can check out we are not in any way sponsored really by anybody right now um, if you would like to change please that give us money yeah if you'd like to change that please we want do. equipment <laughs> 
Yeah, our, our we want a studio. A studio would be nice. Some soundproofing, maybe some actual audio equipment that we don't have to wrestle with for two hours. Um, but please do check out Barnivore. They have a very large list of wines that will tell you whether or not they're vegan, if that is a concern for you. So there's that. Well, to, I guess, finish out my notes for what I had, uh, I want to finish it out on the producers. One of the, I think, biggest appeals to me for natural wine is the promotion of the small-scale, family-owned winery. You know, I've kind of talked about how I got into wine earlier on in the podcast, but Virginia wine is what got me into wine. I live in Virginia, obviously. And going to the wineries here is what got me interested in wine. And one thing I really like about the Virginia wine industry is it's very small at the moment in terms of not necessarily. Well, I mean, we are still small in terms of what we produce volume wise, but we're also very small in terms of, you know, outside of some of the really big wineries like, you know, Barbersville, Early Mountain, um, Jefferson Vineyards. There's a lot of extremely small wineries. I mean, one of our favorite wineries is Rainer Florence. We talk about them often. And that's basically one guy, uh, you know, Who doing does everything. Of, yeah, doing a lot of that work. Um, he literally yeah. built the place. I just, I still can't get over that. Like, yeah. just like, oh, so uh, who's the vineyard worker? Uh, oh, well, it's this guy. Well, who is the architect? It's this guy. Yeah. Well, who is the winemaker? Is that? Is like that scene from uh, from Bruce Almighty, mm-hmm. where he's just like, like, oh, well, the owner will be right out, and he sheds the the electrician uniform. Yeah. And, you know, the guy is just everything there. And they ended up winning the Governor Silver Cup for their maritage. Yeah. But that was something about Virginia wines that really got me into wine in general. And the wineries here is seeing all these very small scale producers and their different philosophies on wine, how they approach wine. And like, yeah, that means there's a lot more variety in the quality level as well. But Again, not to rip on California too much, but I would rather have a diversity of wine, even on a quality level, than having Napa cabs that, in my opinion, all taste the same. So I think the natural wine movement, kind of going on from that, really is about focusing on what your little vineyard plot or plots, if you have multiple, what they can do, what grows there, what does best there, how does that reflect the tradition of your region? How does that reflect, you know, if you come from a family of winemakers, how does that reflect that? If you're new to winemaking, how does it reflect what you think wine should be? There's a lot more personality in that. In the actual product itself. Yeah, than the giant conglomerates that dominate places like Napa Valley or even Bordeaux. You know, there's so much homogeneity. Again, I know I keep using the term, but homogeneity amongst the big regions and and the capital that is interested in, you know, making a lot of money from them. I just enjoy seeing the the return to tradition of the small scale winery that produces a wine that is kind of unlike anything else you are likely to taste. And also for me, it really is again to to go back to this, having that expression of wine having that expression of just what the small vineyard can do in order to create as unique of a product as possible. It also marries into responsibility. When, you know, 
we were developing our farming practices in the U.S., we did it very haphazardly. And across the world, I believe that mass production was the most expedient thing that we needed simply because of the fact that scarcity was a thing. And then the industrial age hit. And so we had all of these scorched earth methods being allowed to grow at an industrial rate without considering how that expansion of those practices would actually impact the environment and impact us in the future. And so we were able to uh, see scarcity have an answer, but not a sustainable answer and Mm -hmm. not an answer that accounted for other factors. So now that we have the technology to measure these things, like even just in the bee population, you know, the, uh, Mm -hmm. the common, the common bee, the wild bee, is actually not uh, the bees that you might be thinking of for honey. Mm-hmm. But these are the ones that actually are responsible for our food. And they don't really have a chance of surviving if we don't do some changing. Exactly. So, you know, even within this sustainable attitude, they'll do things like put down wood piles and, and posts so that you can have that more natural pollination happen from those local populations being given an area to nest in instead of having the scorched earth method where you have fields and fields and fields where you want no bugs whatsoever and then you have to roll in in hives that are being cultivated by people from around the country. You lose half the hives in transport and they end up competing even more so with the local populations of of, uh, insects Mm -hmm. and decrease that diversity again decrease that sustainability again because you don't want to be dependent on a system that requires that much energy consumption because once the energy is gone once the system can no longer sustain itself it all collapses yeah so the responsibility and the expression both being a net positive is really what compels me toward an enthusiasm towards natural wine mm-hmm. uh, in general yeah. So I, I think that this is a great movement. I think that it needs some adjustment with its attitudes. Yeah, um, I agree. But all in all, I'm very enthusiastic because of how much energy is being put behind it. Again, if you have, uh, do you, do you have anything else that you would like to? Oh, no, that was, uh, that was all my ranting. That was all your ranting. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us once again. This has been a unique episode in that it was literally nothing but hot takes the entire time. <laughs> Um, but we hope that you enjoyed this as well as our last episode. Our next episode is going to be on liquor versus liquor. Yes. Uh, and that is going to be a fairly short episode. Yeah. We, we've thrown two kind of, uh, monsters at you in a row. So we anticipated it only being one big monster and then it turned into two on the fly. So, <laughs> but hopefully you enjoyed them. Uh, hopefully they will inform some of your future exploration of wine but as always thank you very much for listening to us and cheers cheers